Oh, great God, it is such a privilege to be here. Such a, such a thrill to be in your presence, to be with your people, to gather and to pause from just the, the busy pace of our lives and to focus on you, to sing of your glory, to sing about who you are, to reflect on, on the fact that you are our Messiah who's come. That this is no fairy tale, this is no figment of our imagination, but you, the God of all glory, stepped out of heaven. You came to this earth, you lived among men. You lived a perfect life. And ultimately you were crucified. You gave your very life, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. And even this week, as we, uh, as we march our way towards our Easter celebration, our hearts are just drawn toward the cross and towards your resurrection. Our hearts are drawn toward what, you've come, what you came to accomplish on our behalf, the rescue that you came to bring to us. We who were and are sinners who enslaved to sin, no hope apart from your intervention in our lives. No way to atone for our sin ourselves. No way to do enough good deeds to earn our way. But you did what we could never do. Came and you shed your blood. Gave your very life for us as an atoning sacrifice. And our hearts are just drawn to you because of that. Lord, we, we couldn't say thank you enough. We couldn't, we couldn't generate enough gratitude in our lives even. We couldn't worship you enough, Lord, to say thank you for what you've done for us. And yet our presence here this morning is an expression of how we feel. It's an expression of what we desire. We desire to bring before you our songs and our prayers and even our very lives this morning and lay them before you as an act of worship, honoring you as the God that you are, thanking you for what you've done in our lives, and even at the same time seeking your continued work in our hearts. Because we come this morning as imperfect people who have lived even imperfectly this week. And, and there's much in our lives, Lord, for which we seek forgiveness even this morning. And there's much work yet to be, be done in us as you make us in the image of your Son. And so we pray that all of your purposes might continue to work their way out in us today, even as we worship you. And so we pray, Lord, that what we do this morning would honor you. We pray that as we do it, Lord, you would speak to us and you would draw us closer to yourself. That you would teach us from your word. That you would open our eyes to the realities of our life. That we would see ourselves as you see us. And that you would make us more like Jesus today. I already pray for our pastor as he brings the message in just a moment. That you would fill him with your Holy Spirit by way of empowering him to deliver your message today. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we, might, that we might hear it and receive it well, that our hearts might be fertile soil in which your word might plant itself today and grow up and bear fruit. And Lord, we pray for these things and we offer our worship to you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior and risen King. Amen. At home group last Sunday night, Somebody said to me, either I missed something 
or you didn't get past point one. She did not miss a thing. So we conclude the message that we began last week. We also conclude sort of this initial section in the Gospel of John. We'll start a new section with chapter 5. Um, in a couple of Sundays. <clears throat> and so today we complete this message on the official, the, the healing of the official son. I don't know that that's the key to it all. The key is really the man's belief, the growing faith in his life. And we talked about that uh, last week, the stages of faith and belief that we see in here. You see that word actually three times in verse 48 and then in verse 50 and then in verse 53 of John chapter 4. In case you're wondering where we are, we're in John chapter 4. And, and these three stages, what we see is Christ encounters a, a false faith. Uh, and then we see Christ testing a, a growing faith in this man's life. And then we have Christ rewarding a, 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 a truly tested faith. And, and we know, we, we've said it over and over and over, that's what... John tells us in chapter 20, that's why he wrote these things, so that we might believe. Belief is the key. Um, and yet we have this initial transition here at the beginning, and I'll review a little bit of what we talked about uh, last week, starting at verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so John has given us this transition passage, which he does from time to time uh, in this gospel. It's common for him. And he talks about Jesus returning to Galilee. He's going from Jerusalem to uh, into Samaria for a couple of days and then on up to Galilee, presumably to get away from some potential stress, um, some, uh, something that might could even lead to premature death because he knows that it is not his time. It is not his hour. His time was coming, but it's not now. And we also know that at this point he only has five disciples. So he goes up to Galilee, has to um, complete his uh, group of uh, disciples in that area. And and it might even be that when he got to Galilee, even he showed up at Peter's home. Uh, We don't really know. Uh, But we see some of that taking place in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 5 and 6. So he leaves Samaria. He spends two days there. You know, we went through the, the, um, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, and, it, and it's a fruitful ministry he has there for two days. It's not only fruitful in the life of the Samaritans, it's fruitful in the life of his disciples because his di- disciples got to see what, what, what true non-discriminatory evangelism was all about. And then Jesus, in verse 44, makes the, well, we did this, this um, uh, declaration that he had testified in other places. Um, John notes Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. The ESV translates that best. It could say 
uh, country or region, uh, but it could also mean hometown, which seems to be a better translation because they, if it was region, then there would be some conflict with verse 45 to say they welcomed him. Uh, but we know just not too long after this, he goes to Nazareth, gets in trouble in Nazareth. They drag him out of town and take him on top of a cliff and they're getting ready to throw Jesus off the cliff. And the Bible says he just walks away. And his destination is Galilee. And the Galileans, in verse 45, received him well. They welcomed him. Because what? They had been eyewitnesses of what he had done in Jerusalem during the feast. John tells us in chapter 2, verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But we know from verse 48, we'll see in a minute, that it, it was a shallow reception. Any reception that's based on signs and wonders is a shallow reception. And I'm sure many people, you know, they welcomed, those Galileans welcomed him because they saw those things that he'd done in, in, in Jerusalem. And they thought, you know, maybe he just might put on a great divine magic show right here in Galilee. That'll be exciting. So they received him, they welcomed him as a wonder worker, but not necessarily trusted him as Messiah. And then we go on to this story. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he'd made the water wine. At Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. This man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. How frustrating that must have been for him. And just an overview of what we talked about last week. Plus, you know, with two sermons, I have the luxury of completing some thoughts that I did not complete last week. But to get a full picture of what's going on here... It would be important for you to go back to last Sunday's sermon and get this full first point, graceontheashley.com. Although if you're watching live stream, you're already on graceontheashley.com. We saw Jesus returns to Cana where he attended a wedding, performed his, uh, his uh, first sign or miracle there at this wedding in Cana where he was apparently invited um, and uh, then we see what takes place here. We see in verse 54, this was the second sign that he did in this area. And that's the only time John numbers miracles. We don't see many miracles in Galilee, although he spends half his, his entire ministry, at least half his entire ministry in, in Galilee in this particular area. John just mentions two or three Miracles he performed there. The other Gospels have a long list of uh, signs and wonders that Jesus did in that particular area. But he numbers them um, and, he, and, he, and he connects the two because he must think that we ought to connect the two 
as well. And, and because there are some similarities. There were, there were both third day miracles. Um, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says on the third day, um, here in this situation, he's two days in Samaria and this is the next day. So they're both third day miracles. Secondly, the miracles contain some sort of rebuke. He rebuked his mother. She says, hey, they're out of wine. He says, what's that got to do with me? Um, and in, in this situation, we, we've got this rebuke in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You've got to see me put on a show in order to believe. It's not right. Verse 3, in each one, he performs the miracle at a distance somewhat. He's not right there physically where the miracle takes place. Number four, the servants involved at the, at the wedding. And then also this nobleman, this official's servants, had some knowledge of what had happened, what had taken place. And then the fifth thing is that at the end of both uh, accounts, we see this recognition that people believed. In the first one, um, John tells us that Jesus' disciples, the ones that he had at that point, put their faith in him. And the second narrative, we see that his, his whole household uh, believed at this point. And, and so those are, those are the similarities, but the, the, the biggest thing is the difference. And there's one difference. One is a wedding, and one is dealing with the death of a son. One is dealing with joy. One is dealing with sadness or sorrow. One is dealing with happiness. One is dealing with sickness and desperation and the anxiety of a parent. You parents, you can imagine that. You parents, you, you, you felt that. One joy, one sorrow. And life is full of both. And Jesus must be involved in both areas of our lives. Archibald Campbell, I shared this quote last week, said, Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, and bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that is not of this world. And then he encounters this man, this nobleman, this official maybe of... Herod Antipas' court, don't really know. We know he's well off. He's got servants that meet him when he finally goes back home. But we see in contrast to the, 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 the situation with the, the woman at the well, we see that um, sickness and, 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 and death and, and sorrow and pain are great social levelers. We see this rich nobleman, and then he's also dealt with the woman at the well. Great social levelers are the pain that's going on in our lives. When this man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. He's breathless. 22 miles, about a seven-hour walk. How far did you run last week? Never mind. Never mind. Um, he's probably riding. He's a wealthy man. But he's breathless. He's, he's, he's hurried 
Um, he doesn't want to lose a minute because his son is sick and dying and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and he begs for his son's life. It seems like Jesus pours some cold water on this situation when he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You know, if you, I, I mentioned last week, if you, if you want to you want to relate this to yourself, just consider this prayer. That's all this is. This is prayer. This man's coming to Jesus and praying. That's what we do. My son, my son is dying. God heal him. If you're a parent, you know how helpless this man felt. You know the fear that gripped his life, watching the suffering of his child, whose life was far more important than that father's life. Then we see God doesn't answer as we expect. You've got priorities and you want, you want this prayer answered, but God seems to have other priorities. And... Uh, y- 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 Because you don't know what the most important thing is. He does know what the most important thing is. There's this urgency in this prayer. And Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry. You know how he makes you wait. He's simply not in a hurry. God's got forever to answer your prayer. (laughs) We don't think in those terms. Praise, he's desperate, he's in a hurry, and Jesus responds in a way that seems unfeeling without any urgency to it. You know, remember when Lazarus was sick and he gets the word and Jesus waits two days to come to his friend at Lazarus and lo and behold, Lazarus ups and dies before Jesus gets there. Martha says, you know, if you'd have come right away, you made us wait. He wouldn't have died. Death is not a big deal with Jesus. He can handle that. And so what he's doing, he's putting aside the apparently urgent necessity, that's what the man feels, in order to deal with a deeper necessity, and that's what Jesus knows. And what's happening is it's a good thing to heal that boy. It's a good thing to heal a sick child. It's always a good thing to heal a sick child. But it's more important that this father be led to the truth. Bringing you to faith is the most important thing. But he just wanted a miracle. Just like today, we're just seeking signs and wonders. God, just show me. If you just show me, I'll believe. Some divine magic show. And we see so many people today fall into that same trap. We've got faith healers and miracle workers deceiving millions around the world, creating false belief in people's lives. And many cases, as we saw that Spurgeon quote a couple of weeks ago, sending people straight to hell unwarned. People continually seeking signs and wonders. And those people that are seeking those things are just ripe for the religious swindlers who offer healing from God and they're taking in millions of dollars out of the pockets of the poor people. 
And you know those Samaritans? He just left Samaria. They didn't need signs and wonders. They hadn't worshipped in Jerusalem. They didn't see what Jesus did. They didn't know he did that sort of thing. They didn't know he was a wonder-working, miracle worker. They believed the Word. What's it say in that story? He told us all things. They believed His Word. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus was and is in the miracle business. It just needs to be put in its proper biblical perspective. Alexander McLaren said, Miracles are rather a hindrance than a help to the reception of Christianity in many quarters. And we're the same way. Unless we see, we won't believe. It's our nature. True wisdom, true beauty, true perfect love all goes over our heads. But you feed 5,000 people with a loaf of bread, that's somebody I want to follow. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Even the strongest faith leans towards some external, some visible. We subject ourselves to those same words again. But for this man at this point, all he wanted was a miracle. That man had a need. He needed a miracle. He needed his son healed. And that need brought him to Jesus. And the same is true for every single one of us here today. Not until you're aware of your need do you come to him. He may have had some imperfect, ignorant faith. But he had a need, and he knew where to come. And ultimately, not until you realize that you have a need to have your sins forgiven, will you come to him and fall at the feet of Jesus. And you can come today. What's your need? I'll tell you what your need is. You need to be rescued from hell. That's your need. Come to Him. Second thing we see is a growing faith. The official said to him, verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. So he asked Jesus to come. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And, and almost as if he says to himself, well, what's that got to do with me? Sir, he says it again. Come down before my child dies. Jesus said, go, your son will live. Man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He just ignores, it seems like he just ignores what Jesus says and he repeats his prayer. You do that? You don't get your answer, you know. You've been waiting for a couple of weeks and you thought, well, maybe I should pray again. And you pray that prayer over and over. And sometimes you pray that prayer for years. God, save my son. God, heal my parents. Over and over and over. And that's what this man does. 
It's almost like, okay, Jesus, I don't really have time to talk about these things right now. Don't talk to me about whatever you were just talking about, signs and wonders. My son's sick. Please come and heal him. That's all I want. I'll talk to you about all these things a little bit later. Now, that may not be the case, but he repeats his prayer. And Jesus answers this father's prayer and he denies this father's prayer at the same time. He answers, but he doesn't answer. Sir, come down. Come and heal my son. And Jesus says, go. He lives. Now, why didn't he go? Why in answering this prayer does he refuse to go? Well, we've got a great comparison with the story of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. James Boyce really makes that comparison best, so we'll use his words. There are some noted similarities, so much so that some scholars have imagined these to be two versions of the same incident. They are not the same. And the greatest of all differences is to be found in the attitudes of the two men involved. The centurion had the greatest faith. He said to Jesus, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus praised his faith, saying, I'll tell you the truth. I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Still, the centurion had this faith from the beginning, while the nobleman, the official, who sought out Jesus in Cana, came to the same level of faith in a very short time through Jesus' teaching. The centurion prays that Christ will just speak. And Christ says to the centurion, oh, I'll come. The centurion doesn't even, he has no idea that Christ's presence is necessary. So that's not really important to him that Jesus come. Just speak. You don't have to come to my house. Just speak a word. I believe in who you are. But this nobleman says, come, because it never enters his mind that Christ can do anything unless he's standing over the bed like a doctor, doing whatever doctors do. He says, come, or my son dies, because it never enters his mind that Christ could do anything if his son actually did die. And if his son did die, all hope would be lost, right? Not with Jesus. And because his faith was so small and feeble, Christ refuses his request to go. Because he knew that to refuse would just do nothing but strengthen that man's faith. With the centurion, Jesus was asked to speak by a man uh, with a strong faith. And he rewards that faith by offering to come. With the nobleman, Jesus was asked to come by a man who had weak faith, and he rewards that man's weak faith by not coming. And he heals him at a distance. And the result of that reveals even more power and more grace flowing from our Savior.
Now, that's the best point. Again, the man's soul is more important to Jesus than the man's son's sickness. And so he heals him from a distance. And have you thought about this? This puts this man in a very, very awkward situation. Go. What a dilemma he's in now. So if he takes Jesus at his word, he did so with the assurance beyond the word that Jesus could do anything for him. If he refuses to take Jesus at his word, he's going to insult the very man that he's placing all his hopes on. And quite possibly forfeit any advantage he might get from him. What a dilemma. Would you come and heal my son? Please, it's urgent. Come and heal my son. And Jesus says, go. He's healed. What a dilemma. I believe he's got to come with me in order for my son to be healed. He's telling me he's already done it. Go. Now what do I do? Do I stick around and keep begging him? Or do I go? It's just a fleeting fleeting thought because, I mean, it's just a split-second thought in his mind. Go, you're selling to live. And, and, and John tells us, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He didn't have to consider that dilemma very long. Short, simple command. Jesus put this powerful man in the position where he was going to be compelled to show some real faith. Some real belief. Do I turn back to Capernaum? Do I keep begging him? And John called that believing. He believed the word. Hmm. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Did you see what Jesus has done? Here's the man who actually lived by that. And in a short while, just a just a short, brief conversation with Jesus Christ, he's moved from having to see a sign and wonder to actually trusting the person of Jesus Christ. If you have to see it to believe it, it's not faith. Faith is not by sight. You remember at the end, close to the end of this gospel, we're reminded of this same truth again. And Jesus encounters Thomas in John chapter 20. When he said, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so he turns, he goes away, 
holding on to the promise, holding on to the blessing. He trusts, while at the same time, he cannot see the sign. He cannot see that his son has been healed. Think, just think of that growth that's taking place in that brief encounter. A few short moments with Jesus Christ. He runs to Jesus, breathless, impatient, with an earnest plea. And he cared about nothing else but his child. But he leaves just a short moment later. His faith raised up far beyond where it was when he came to Jesus. Because he believes in the Word and not the sign and he turns and he heads home. See that? See how his faith has grown? And that's what must happen to us as well. That we trust Christ's Word. That we trust His promise and nothing else. This is full, chock full of the promises of God that you can stake your life on. You can stand on His promises. You go in your prayer closet and you pray to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and He gives you your promise and you hang on to that and your weak faith. It doesn't matter how weak your faith is. Your weak faith that maybe required signs and wonders at one time. Maybe you required something visible. Remember we talked about last week, seeing is believing. Well, no, it's not. And a strong faith walks away from the Master at peace in possessing the promise that He has given and relying on nothing else but the Word of God. That's faith we have to exercise. Christ has spoken, and that's enough for this man. Is it enough for you? Are you content to say your word, your, just your plain word is all that I need? For you have spoken and you will do it, O Lord. What a test. Will he trust or will he not? Does the son die if he, if he doesn't turn around and head back to Capernaum? The man's faith was the most important thing. His son's condition was secondary. And in trusting, he gets the blessing. And the boy is saved. And then the third thing, it's not complete. The third thing we see is true faith. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him, told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Stage three. And the progress of belief in this man's life. Here we have Christ, albeit absent, rewarding a faith that had been tested. 
And here's the picture. The father returns. His servants meet him. The servants say the same thing to him that Jesus said to him. Your son lives. And then there's this question. If that center, now, if, if this nobleman is anything like me, there's this question. What if all this is coincidence? What if my son just got well on his own? It's that fleeting question when they say your son is well. That little bit of doubt. And so he says, what time did that happen? And they didn't say, we're not really sure. Uh, He's improving. You know, he's not out of the woods yet. They say, yesterday at the seventh hour. Then he knew it was Jesus. That was the time. Jesus said the man was well. The boy was well. And at this point, this nobleman, this official in the court of Herod Antipas, was the only person that knew about that miracle. And so he was given more than what his faith had expected. Bishop Hall, J.C. Rao quoted Bishop Hall, said, How sweetly does he correct our prayers and while does he, he does not give us what we asked, gives us better than we asked. The boy was healed. Because when Christ does the healing, he does it thoroughly. And not always at once. And you think, what else did this man learn in this encounter? Not just that Christ had healing power, but also the fact that Christ is able to put His will into words. And as He puts His will into words, it happens. And He does that with great power and great grace in the lives of His people. So now the man sees it clear and the lesson for us is clear. He's always working at a distance from us. And by that I mean he's not here physically as that man was having a conversation with Jesus. We're not standing next to the human Jesus Christ. So in some sense he's always working it at us with us at a, at a distance. And his word is true and his word can be trusted to believe initially this man needed sight. And that might be True in your life today as well. To believe initially he needed sight. And then Jesus moved him to something deeper than that. And then he believed in the words of Jesus. And then not coming to full belief until he realizes that he can rely on Jesus Christ as the healer, as the Messiah, as the Savior. And so the father knew this was the hour. The Bible says he believed in all his household. And this we talked about this when we preached through Acts, what that actually means. And it can mean different things at different times. But uh, clearly this man 
understanding, finally believing who Jesus really was, not just some wonder-working miracle worker that if he saw the healing, he would believe. No, he was somebody he could trust his life and the life of his son to. He was so thrilled with that. He goes and shares that truth with his family and all his household believes. You remember when you first got saved and you would te- you'd, you'd, you'd witness to that post over there. To increase your faith, you have to exercise it. The beginning of a great faith is to experience the blessings that come from the weakest faith, the blindest faith. To experience great faith, you, you experience the blessings that come from that little kernel of faith that you started out with. And you might have that weak faith. You might be saying, yeah, that's me. My faith is weak. And I'm telling you today, trust Him the best you can. He took this man from an ignorant, false faith to a truly tested faith. Don't be afraid to hang on to Him. Don't be afraid to... Trust Him. Don't, don't, don't be afraid to take that blind step of faith, even if you know for sure yours is such a weak faith. Just go for it. He can be trusted. Trust Him the best you can, and He'll give you more than you ever expected. And as a result of that, you'll trust Him more the next time. And then you'll trust Him more the next time. That's how we grow. And you'll be able to say, I'll paraphrase what the Samaritan said in John 4:42. Now, I believe, for I've heard for myself, and I know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The point of this story is that it illustrates a new dimension of believing. And that is believing without the immediacy of seeing. And again, it foreshadows those words Jesus saying to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This man comes to Jesus with the deepest pain, the deepest agony, the deepest anxiety. You have you have faith healers around the world who say that it's it's God's will always for you to be well. Have you heard that before? That God always desires your healing. Well, I want you to know that your affliction might be God's will for you and not healing. There's reason for that. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you this quote. John Piper said, The quickest way to the heart is through a wound. J.C. Ryle says it even best, but with more words. 
Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world, which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. And our prayer would be (laughs) with thousands and thousands, millions and millions on that very last day to say with the psalmist, 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Great theologian Tom Landry he was he was a Christian um, served on the board of Dallas Theological Seminary, great coach of the Dallas Cowboys when they were go out. I'll talk loud. He says the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they really want. That's what our walk with the Lord is like. Trust and obedience means that we go through circumstances that we don't want to go through. We go through the affliction. We go through the pain. We go through the sick child. We go through whatever we're going through. And God makes us face things we do not like to face. There, in, in that video earlier, we, we, you saw, you heard a, a phrase or you heard something that maybe your marriage is going through. Struck a nerve. You thought, oh man, I gotta go to that conference and I gotta deal with that? Yes. God makes us deal with it. And He makes us go face things that we don't like to face in order that what? We might reach the prize. That which our hearts wanted all along. And all of that requires the strengthening of our faith, the strengthening of our belief as we move closer to Him. Hebrews 12:11 says for the moment all discipline seems for rather than pleasant but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And one more Ryle quote The resurrection morning will prove that many losses of God's people were in reality eternal gains. Hallelujah. So John has told us in the first section of this gospel that the gospel's for everyone. Whoever it may be, rich, poor, moral, 
immoral, religious, non-religious, you fall into that category somewhere. You fall into one of those categories. And belief is available. That includes you. Embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. Trust Christ to save you. With the weakest faith, trust Christ to save your soul. You think about that. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word, the truth of your word, for the gift of faith. We pray, Lord, that you might continue to enlarge our faith, grow our faith. May we trust you more and more each day. And Father, for those here this day who don't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that you might plant in them the knowledge of their need to be saved. That they might repent. They might express belief on whatever level they're at. For your glory and your glory alone. We praise you, O Lord. May we be moved from where we are right now to where you want us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we say. As we say. As we say. As we say.